Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. So it's Palm Sunday. I want you to picture with me this, this scene where Jerusalem is abuzz. Someone is coming. There's someone whose reputation precedes him. And over the hills outside of the city, moving towards Jerusalem, you could see this procession coming. This man that everyone has heard about, he's finally arriving, and the crowds that followed him are declaring that he is king, one who prophesies, and one who has been spoken of by people for long, long, from long, long ago. And he's riding in on this white horse of victory, and he arrives in Jerusalem with celebration and all. It is Palm Sunday, but I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about something that happened about 300 years before Jesus was born, because in this triumphant entry, it was not Jesus as king. It was someone very different. In 332 BC, Alexander the Great rolled into Jerusalem on a white horse, coming to conquer. And as he entered into pomp and circumstance, the people did not even put up a fight. And this was the pattern in the ancient world. As you entered into a city as the conquering warrior, as the conquering king, you would ride in on this big, majestic war horse. You would display all of your power and the spoils of your victory. And as you arrive, you are proclaiming that with your arrival, the reign of peace has finally come. Now contrast this now with what we have entered into in our story today on this Palm Sunday. Jesus, in Matthew 21, we see a very different picture than those who had marched into Jerusalem before. Look with me here on the screen. Matthew chapter 21, it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone has anything to say to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now, I want to confess this morning that I have thought about going by the Ford dealership and those new Ford Broncos. You know what I'm talking about? Those awesome Ford Broncos. And just walking up, getting in one, and driving away. And if anybody stops me or tries to stop me, I'll just say, the Lord needs it. But I would know that that would not work. I would be tased and in jail right now. And that's not good for our church reputation if I have been a part of stealing property. And so I've not done that yet. But this is, this is something strange here. Jesus just tells them to say, the Lord needs it. And they're just supposed to go. What it's communicating is that Matthew wants us to know there's a divine plan in place here. This is not an accident. This is not random. What's happening as Jesus enters Jerusalem, God in his sovereignty and purpose, he is moving towards this central moment in human history. The grain of the universe is moving towards Jerusalem with Jesus in this moment. Something big is about to take place. And yet, no king or warrior or emperor would be caught dead on a young donkey. That is like riding in on a Datsun hatchback from the 70s. 
It is the lowest of low. He is sending a message here. A donkey is not representative of anything of power and wealth and might that you might expect from kings to enter into. Jesus wants us to see something. Jesus wants us to pay attention. I mean, imagine at the inauguration of the President of the United States, the whole thing is coming huge, thousands, millions of people watching, and the president rides up on a riding lawnmower. That's the equivalent of what's happening in this story. Jesus is literally, quite literally, disarming this crowd, which is what we see next. It's intentional. It continues on. It says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. In Galilee. Now you may not know this, but in 168 BC, King Antiochus of the Seleucid Empire, which I'm sure you've read a lot about in your history, he, he began this violent and oppressive assault on the Jewish people on Jerusalem. And he came in and conquered and he turned the temple into a pagan cult of Zeus. He began to sacrifice, sacrifice pigs and unclean animals and force the, the priest to eat them as a sign of disrespect. And so as this conquering warrior king comes in and takes over, people begin to stir and say, we must do something about this, which becomes a revolution led by a man named Judah Maccabee, a fierce revolutionary. He was known as the hammer Thousands of years before Daryl Isaac, he was the hammer who brought the pain. And through his leadership, King Antiochus was defeated. He was driven out. It was guerrilla warfare. They came in and made sure just with very little resources they could drive out these pagans who had ruined the temple. He cleansed it out, and he brought the city of Jerusalem back into the hands of its people. It was this rare moment in a very oppressive history for the Jewish people of, of victory and independence and power. And here's the kicker. When Judah Maccabee, when he rode into the city to celebrate, you know what people started to do? They cut down palm branches and they began waving them. And this moment became so iconic for the people of Jerusalem. They did the same thing many of us have done when we want to celebrate iconic moments, they made a coin. You can see here on the screen, this is a coin from way back in the day. You see the palm branches there representing this national pride of what used to be. Remembering the, the victory of Judah Maccabee. And as we see on here, there are palm branches. So when we think about the story of Palm Sunday, when people are waving and laying down palm branches, you need to understand that Jesus knew what was happening here. This is a military parade. 
This is a military procession. These palm branches were highly symbolic. One scholar compared the waving of the palm branches to the waving of the American flag. There is something that's being said. This is a symbol of not only nationalistic pride, it is a symbol of revolution. The crowd was ready for a Messiah. They wanted the Messiah, though, to look like Judah Maccabee. They wanted the hammer to come and bring these Romans down. They wanted a violent uprising because the empire is different now, but it's the same oppressive empire that they had lived under for generations and generations and generations. And maybe this Jesus, maybe this guy riding on a donkey would be the one who finally brings this overthrowing revolution for them once and for all. Maybe in Jesus, the revolution had finally arrived. And yet he doesn't come with banners of war. He comes carrying, as we know, the gospel of peace. He arrives in Jerusalem, not with bravado and power and empire and wealth. He comes in humility and peace of the kingdom of God. I used to wonder why on Sunday they cry out, Hosanna, praise, and then a few days later cry, crucify him. Well, it honestly makes a ton of sense. I used to wonder why in Jesus, as he rides in triumphant and people praise God for his entry, why they would choose Jesus Barabbas to free instead of Jesus Christ. No, it makes a ton of sense. Because to a world that is convinced that force and violence are the only way we have forward, Jesus does not make sense. Jesus still does not make sense to those who put their trust in violence and might. It's true then. And it is true now. We may not be waving palm branches, but we may be waving an American flag. We may not be waving the, the, the palm branches, but we may be waving our voting records. We may be waving our culture war banners of us versus them. We might be waving something to try to get Jesus to come and be the Savior that we want him to be for our agenda. But he just refuses to do it. He still don't make sense to us. We are con collectively convinced in our culture that in order to bring any kind of change, it has to rise to the top. We got to climb the ladder. And it was a sentiment that was shared even by Jesus' closest disciples. You see, one chapter before this in Matthew 20, James and John and their mother privately approached Jesus with this request. It's almost as if they sense something is about to happen. I love that they bring their mom to be a part of that. Or I wonder if in this, Matthew's just being kind, and, and the mom just insisted on being there in the first place. I think Matthew may have just added that in there to, to, to bring that together. The mom goes with James and John, and they say, Promise that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left in the kingdom. In other words... When you lead this uprising, when you vanquish our enemies, when you sit enthroned in power, I want to be on each side 
with you. When you rise to the presidency, make me chief of staff. Make me vice president. I want to be a part of what you are doing. It sounds a lot like what happened in 1 Samuel 8 as they become, the Jewish people come very, uh, just, just longing for a leader. They say like the rest of the world. In 1 Samuel 8, they say, give us a king like the other nations. We want somebody who's going to sit on the throne and rule to be the one on top. And we want to be on either side. We want to be the ones who are moving and shaking throughout history. This is what we want, Jesus. So please give it to us. Even after the resurrection, the disciples are still confused about this because we see in Acts 1, they go to Jesus and say, is this when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Even after the resurrection, they still think that's the story they find themselves in. Willie James Jennings writes about this. He says, the disciples asked the nationalistic question, when we, will we rule our land and become self-determining and if need be, impose our will on others? All this would be, of course, for the good of the world, they suppose. Such ways of thinking turn Jesus into the greatest victor in an eternal competition and produce disciples who follow Jesus only because they worship power. Good thing we don't have a problem with that anymore. James and John come to Jesus, likely here with the best of intentions. They think, if I just have some of that authority, think of all the good that I could do in the world through you, Jesus. But in the process of seeking what they thought was good, they missed God. Sometimes we miss God in seeking good instead of seeking God and getting the good. We think we get to do the good for God instead of going to God and with God doing what is good. Jesus quickly recognizes here that he's becoming a means to an end. And here is how he responds to them. He says, Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary... Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That phrase there, lord it over them in the Greek, is a word that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. You can give it a chance if you want. It's a tough one. But it means to have power standing over another. It's not just power, it's domineering power. It's power at the expense of the powerless. Jesus says, that's how your rulers among the Gentiles do it, but it must not be so among you. We need to hear Jesus' words afresh, my friends. It must not be so among you. We do not operate in power and authority in the same way that the world does, do we? We shouldn't. Being a disciple of Jesus should fundamentally transform the way that we understand and exercise power in this world. Whatever degree of power we might have, you might just be a boss at your job. You might be a teacher working with other people, doctors, whatever your job is, you may have or may not have a measure of authority. What Jesus wants you to know, wants me to know, especially in ministry, is that it must not be so among you. You don't 
operate like the world. As a disciple of the crucified king, the banner we're carrying into the world is not our own agenda. It's not our flag or the symbol of our party. It's not our doctrine or our denomination. Our banner, our hope is what Jesus is moving towards, and that is the cross. This is the paradox and the mystery of what we're moving forward into together this week. The king who rode into Jerusalem on this humble donkey would be the one who's crowned as king, but the crown is going to be of thorns. There would be one who is enthroned in power just like they long for, but the throne would not be the throne of the temple or of the palace. It would be the throne of a bloody Roman cross. To break the power of death, Jesus entered into death itself. And in bearing in his body, in the cross, all of the death and sin, he broke the power of that death and sin over us. First Peter 2, I, I love these words. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness by his wounds we have been healed. What Peter is reminding us, as the New Testament often reminds us, is that all of our sin, all of our violence, the worst that we could bring to God, all of our pride, all of our coercion is born in the body of Christ on the cross. When we look to Jesus on the cross, we see that sin, we see that unrighteousness that we have born in ourselves now nailed to the cross. Meaning that when we know of this sin, when we feel that weight upon us, by faith in Jesus, we look to the cross and know that what we feel, the power over us is broken. The power of sin has no longer had a hold on us. Death no longer has victory. That's good news, right? That's good news. This is the heart of what it means to be restored by God's empowering presence we bring all that we have that stands in the way of wholeness to the cross of Jesus Christ. Not out of fear, but out of forgiveness. Suddenly then, the cross that we move towards this Good Friday is not just the symbol of our faith. It's something bigger. It's not just how we are saved. It's how we are also restored. And following Jesus, what we understand in being his disciple is that the cross is not just the means of our salvation. It's not just the mechanism of our salvation. It is the model of our life with God. As we learn to bear in Jesus our own sin and bring all that is broken to be made whole. Again, Paul echoes this to Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. There is a word that I love that has been rattling around my heart for a while, this idea of being cruciformed. Not just formed, but formed by what the cross has done. To have a cruciformed life means I not only see the cross as the symbol of what I believe, I see the cross as the means by which I find freedom in the here and the now. 
1 John 3 tells us this, that by Jesus' death, he defines this as the very definition of love that overcomes what is broken within us. It says this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. My friends, a lot of times we like to cut that verse in half. Love is defined as what Jesus has done for us. That is true. That is 100% true. But a cross that does not transform fundamentally how we see our neighbors and even our enemies is a cross we have never seen. If it has only worked in our inner world and not in the way we see and treat our neighbors, we need to question what cross we actually came to in the first place. 1 John does not separate the definition of love and the cross and the action of love that comes for our brothers and sisters. I think, this is my conviction, I think it should be good news to our neighbors that we believe in the cross of Christ. It should be good news to our neighbors that we are putting to death the former things and being brought to life again by his son. It should be good news in the way that I now see everyone around me differently because I no longer measure my worth by how good or bad I am because my worth has now fully and finally been found in the Jesus who gave himself for me. And if that is true, I can't hate you anymore. If that is true, I can't look at the enemies, the people on the other side and say, Those are worthless before God. I can only look at my neighbors and say, you are made in the image of God. You are beloved son or daughter of God. and You belong to him. And if we don't arrive there, we need to question what cross we came to in the first place. That's what I remember this Palm Sunday as we close. Celebrating the Prince of peace in a violent world, remembering that love will have the final word. It doesn't seem like it sometimes, does it? Sometimes it seems like the love will not have the final word, but we remember that victory doesn't look like the world. Victory looks like a cross. I'm going to close with these words from Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., from his sermon, Paul's Letter to the American Christians. Words that speak to the work of the cross in us and by love, the work of the cross for our neighbors. He says, we find, our, find the true meaning of the Christian faith and of the cross. Calvary is a telescope through which we look into the long vista of eternity. And see the love of God breaking into time. Out of the hugeness of his generosity, God allowed his only begotten son to die that we may live. By uniting yourselves with Christ and your brothers through love, you will be able to matriculate in the university of eternal life. In a world depending on force, coercive tyranny and bloody violence, you are challenged to follow the way of love. You will then discover that unarmed love is the most powerful force 
in the world. Jesus, this is what we remember today. That you did not come bearing a sword. You came bearing a cross. Lord, where we have modeled a kind of power, a kind of desire that looks more like the world around us, where we lord it over, we repent. Where we have put our trust in people of power that look nothing like the way of Jesus, we repent. God, where we have forgotten our brothers and sisters, where we have allowed the cross to only be about us, we repent. And as we move into this time, God, we reflect on what you have done for us. This cross that you were nailed to, bearing in your body our sins. Bearing in your body our sins. May we never lose the wonder, the awe of what you have done in the cross. Lead us in that, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.